All right. Well, my next guest, he might share the same last name with me, but he is way cooler and knows a lot more about security and tech than I do. Um, so I am joined by Nathan Riley. And Nathan, why don't you quickly introduce yourself? My name is Nato Riley or Nathan Riley is the two names that people call me by, depending on if, if I work with someone or not. But I come from basically doing cybersecurity development. I started as an ethical hacker and working with like malware analysis. And then I ended up getting into data science and software development. And then I was like, oh, I just like developing data science security tools. And that's something that I just kind of do as a hobby. And now I make products and I started a company doing it. So that's that's what I do. <laughs> but you've also done uh, training and teaching as well, right? I have. So I, I'm somewhat, I don't even know, like my background's so strange. It's, it's, uh, it's very people focused. I'll put it that way. But then with the tech stuff involved with it. So I used to do, not used to, I still do. It's, I, I do a lot of training, a lot of education. And then I came up with this idea of like, well, uh, developer teams need my help oftentimes. Training teams need my help oftentimes. I tend to work with both, whether it's like training developers, teaching people things. Uh, but then I finally was like, what if I can find a way to, to package workshops and things like that on top of doing all that so that I can also automatically teach people even when there's only one of me. And then I came up with a new branding that I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to just call myself NATO's code because I just automate myself and then distribute myself everywhere. So <laughs> I do a little bit of everything and I don't know why. And I just, it's just what I do. That's awesome. And I forgot to mention at the beginning, you also, you spoke at a event that I recently was part of hosting um, DevSecOps Days Rockies, and we'll talk more about, you know, what it means to build secure applications. But before we go there, you mentioned, you know, the human side of things and combining human and tech. How does hacking and the human come together? On one end, it's like you, you have the people on the movies and if you've ever seen like there's some old movie from like the 90s or i think it's the 90s anyways called hackers and you have like yeah yeah people in the hoodies and stuff and like people doing all the typing and things like that but in reality a lot of the time like people who are your your standard like real world hacker are people just trying to experiment with something or make something work in a way that it really wasn't supposed to work like for example let's say that there was a pc like application that you wanted to get working on a apple laptop or something along those lines and you're like oh i just want to use this application but it's not compatible with my computer if you go and spend the time to figure out how to make that windows application work on your mac you're a hacker you probably don't even know it or people who just want to try to be like is this thing possible so like i i look at hacking as like curiosity like human curiosity meeting technology and then also like creativity comes with that like artists and uh, people who are like, oh, well, if this can do this, I wonder if it could also do this. And so there's a lot of exploration, in my opinion, when it comes to the idea of hacking, uh, which ultimately got me into the research space most recently. And then I just now I just kind of build random things and who knows what. And I personally still hold on to the hacker brand while other people might call me a researcher, but I kind of find it to be the same thing. Because if you're taking something and you're trying to understand whatever something is, and you're like, okay, so this, according to marketing or according to what people say, should be these things or is this thing or whatever it might be. And in this case, this is like a Raspberry Pi. Well, 
once I started playing with something like a Raspberry Pi, it's like, well, I wonder if I could turn it into something else. And then the next thing you know, you get a 3D printer, and then you get a bunch of other random parts, and you get some screws. And like in a way, research, hacking, it's the same thing, which is the real, the real difference being that I guess hacking would be taking something that's already there and then just kind of like taking a bird's eye view and like looking at it at all the different dimensions where you're like, okay, so it, it's not just this thing. Maybe it could be all these other things too. So that's kind of how I see hacking. Yeah. Does that mean that all hackers are great at escape rooms? I wonder. I've only I mean, done an escape room once and I did it as a part of uh, training and uh, security training. And I, I certainly enjoyed the fact that I had engineers on my team. It absolutely <laughs> helped. <laughs> one of the things that you just said that, that I really like is the artistic side of it. And actually at one point I had a conversation with the fact that security professionals or hackers could make some of the best marketers because they are so creative. And in marketing to some degree, and it's not, you know, malicious, really, you're hacking people's brains, you know, you're finding, you're finding what (laughs) intrigues them and some hacking or a lot of hacking is about manipulating the human to doing things that you want them to do as a first step to getting, getting access. So uh, I really, I really like that. Now, how did you even get into tech? What, what started your interest in tech at all? So I got into tech like at a very young age. Uh, I have sort of a really unusual upbringing. Uh, my parents were entrepreneurs, but they're like nonprofit entrepreneurs. And so we were always being given things by the board members, whether or not my parents had a whole lot of income of their own. And so while my parents might have had like limited spendings, the one thing that we always had was like the latest computer of who knows what, whether it was like usually like Apple computers or Unix computers, things like that. And then the other thing is like, I had a Dreamcast, and one of these days, it was like 2000, 2001, I was, I I had this Dreamcast, it had a dial-up modem in it, and I wanted to play online, but I was a kid, and, you know, kids, you don't have a credit card to, like, go figure out how to, like, swipe the stuff so you could, like, get dial-up internet, get it to your Dreamcast, and we had, uh, you know, we we had cable internet, which was new at the time, the idea of cable internet, it's, like, fast all of a sudden, it's not super slow as molasses. Uh, and so it wouldn't work with my Dreamcast. And I was like, oh, but I, I want to play this video game online with people. And so as a kid, my brain's not wired to understand like accounts and stuff. Like, I don't know what a credit card is in the first place at that age. Uh, and so I was like, well, I just need to get this online so that I can play this video game, Fantasy Star Online with people. So I actually like got on my computer and found out that I could get like access to uh, usable dial-up connections so that I could play this game online. And I didn't realize that I was just like stealing people's internet. And with dial-up, you have limited minutes. So I'd, I'd use up all the minutes on one account thinking it was just like free internet. And then I'd like use up all the minutes on another one. I just move on from account to account to account and just use up all their minutes to play this game online. Uh, and so then after that, I wanted to play Final Fantasy VII, but I didn't have a PlayStation. And I was really into like wanting to play the Final Fantasy games part because it's like it's a thing I couldn't play. I had a Nintendo 64, I had like these other things, but I didn't have a PlayStation. I was like, I just want to play Final Fantasy. No one will let me play Final Fantasy. No one will give me a PlayStation. I'd like ask, ask my dad's board members and they'd be like, no, I'm not going to give you a PlayStation. <laughs> and so I, like I decided to figure out how to, how to emulate 
and make the because you you could get uh, the little emulators that let you play like old school NES games. But I was like, could you use an emulator to make a PlayStation disc readable on like a Macintosh computer? And as a kid, once again, I don't know like what's normal or what's not normal. I just want to like play this game, and I'm like, sweet, you can like build like your own little emulator and then put a disc in there, and and then it'll just turn your like Macintosh computer into a PlayStation. And I was, I was so happy about that. I was just so into that. And so for, for, for that, from those moments on, I, I just wanted to always try to make things work or, or get what I wanted to get until years, years, years later, I broke my hip snowboarding, which put me in this situation where, you know, trying to work at a conference center, I was working at this conference center. I had to walk around a lot and I have broken hips because I jumped off of this like 45 foot jump and I didn't die. I had a helmet on, it was good. Obviously I'm still here. But after I like couldn't do my job, I was like, well, I need a job I can do. So I, I went and applied to this Verizon company and they so happened to do IT and they're like, hey, every time a person has a phone problem and it's like broken and it doesn't work, you like fix everything. And they're like, you want to do IT for us? And I was like, no, I'll never do IT. And they're like, well, okay. And then a, a year later, the Verizon contract at that company ended. And, and they're like, well, that's your job. You were the, the Verizon salesperson. It's like, you can either do IT now, or, or I mean, I guess we don't really know what we do with you. So we have to let you go. And I was like, well, I don't want to lose my job. And I like you guys. So I guess I'll, I'll work on computers. <laughs> it's amazing how many times I've heard video games being a driver. And of all the cool stuff that you just mentioned, <laughs> the, the thing that stuck in my brain was Final Fantasy. Have you played the remake yet? Oh, my goodness. That's one thing I haven't had the time to do. Because uh, when it came out, I was like in the middle of launching new products. And I was like, oh. Why do? Why is it that like I only have time to work? <laughs> I've been uh, oddly disappointed, um, only because the quality is too good. Like it didn't. It, it doesn't have the same feel, and the graphics are too good. Well, that was the whole reason I wanted to play it to begin with. <laughs> I haven't gotten very far, but but I'm I'm enjoying it. Let's talk about, especially now with the recent Solar Winds stuff, application security. Like what? What would be the first thing you would want a developer to know about application security when they're building their applications? Application security. One of the things about application security is if you don't protect like the location where you develop your application, it, what people will ultimately and inevitably try to do is get access to that. And if they get access to that, they're going to figure out what all the vulnerabilities to your application are, and then it makes, them re makes it really easy for them to deploy attacks on, on whatever you make. And so obviously, the first thing you want to do is protect your, your project. And if you don't know how to protect your project, well, then that's something that needs to be figured out. <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of times, I'll, developers have weird habits. This is a thing that if you've ever met a developer before, they probably have some very strange habits. And uh, developers, as a result, tend to do things that are wildly unsecure oftentimes. And they, what they'll do is they'll be like, oh, you know, I just want to go like travel in this place and go develop this thing. And they'll go to coffee shops and they'll just go and work at a coffee shop all the time. I remember this developer is a really great guy, uh, does really great work. And he just always goes and develops at this coffee shop. And it's like, oh, so you always develop at a coffee shop. When you develop at that coffee shop, you use like a VPN or something. You use, use something. You you make sure that your project is using like HTTPS or something like that or something secure. And they're like, wait, 
why do I need a VPN? I'm just trying to code. And it's like, oh, well, I'm sorry. No. <laughs> but there's just, I think there's a lot of it where it comes down to you don't know what you don't know. And, and, and software development is so overly complex in a lot of ways that I find that folks who are really good developers have this heavy investment. And I have a heavy investment in like random things that I know, just like anyone else who knows random things. You have to learn it somehow, whether you went to school, read a lot of books, I don't care how you learned it. Where the part that they don't know so happens to be the security side. And so it really kind of comes down to like, you don't know what you don't know. So I think in a lot of ways, security awareness is a thing that tends to really hit companies hard. Security awareness and developers. Security awareness is already important, but then a lack of security awareness in your developer team and your developer groups translates to your most sensitive pieces are more easily scanned and more easily analyzed and vulnerabilities are easier to find and sniff out and things like that. Uh, and people want your data. People want to find out like what you're working on and figure out all that stuff. Uh, and so I even think about that like with my open source development. If I create something open source and I put it out to the world, my first assumption is everyone on the planet who likes to harvest data is going to just harvest it and then they're going to find ways to repackage it and put it out there something. So I always make things in a way that if it gets picked up, stolen, snapped, or something along those lines, that people are going to do what I want them to do. Now that's like a whole other strategy, but I don't know. Now I'm just talking about things that are, I could go down a long rabbit hole. I'll, I'll stay away from that rabbit hole. Security awareness and developers. I think that's very, very, very important. There is one large athletic clothing manufacturer, I think that's how I would say it, who <laughs> um, their security teams, they, they do, they very deliberately on a quarterly basis do hackathons for their developers that are all around security and, and they have bug bounties and, and stuff like that. And they make it really fun, oh, nice. that communication, but that's, that's rare. And mm -hmm. hopefully that's changing. But I think just like you said, now there needs to be awareness about awareness because I think most enterprises <laughs> don't realize that that's an effort that needs to be invested in. Well, I kind of want you to go down the rabbit hole a little bit, but not, not too far. I, I'm curious about this concept of developing components to get people to do what you want to do, I think is <laughs> somehow how you said it yeah. uh, in the area of open source, because one thing that I, I think that is important for all developers to know is that there is somewhat of a code of ethics, whether it's published or not, a code of ethics related to application development. For example, something very simple, don't use password as password. Don't store your database credentials on your Dropbox shared folder, things of that sort. Like some basic stuff that has gone wrong in history that has led to a lot of exploits but totally. in the world of open source where you have massive communities of you know very talented people building projects like one of the projects that i'm really interested in these days is open yeah. telemetry for observability how do those communities of developers ensure that they're building secure open source so that's a really good question because with open source it's really tricky open source is super complicated actually it's a really, I think that's one thing that drew me into the open source space at a high level. You know, I used to work on more like licensed platforms and licensed softwares and things like that. And when you're working with a licensed platform of some sort, there's this emphasis on like 
iron gates around what you're working on and then like making sure that there's this little visibility into those iron gates. The tricky part when we start getting into open source kind of comes into this whole idea that with like open source now, if you want to like protect your, your software and there might be potential vulnerabilities, things like that. Well, all of a sudden, how are we going to protect that? You can protect that with more like practices, right? What are your practices? And for a large company that turns into like policy and standards, and if anyone's heard of like compliance and things like that, that can be somewhat of a foundation, but that's still only but a foundation. So really just like practices, what do you do when you build something? What's your workflow? So with like open source, the real security comes from customization where you might go and take something that someone else made just start iterating, start making little things different. Because all of a sudden, let's say that you get infected by a malware that was built for an open source software. Well, that malware expects that this open source tool is going to operate exactly how it was built to work and that it's going to be just exactly how it was out of the box, right? And so if you're going to be using open source in your ecosystem, customize it. If you customize it, then realistically, they're gonna have some updates, go and customize the updates next. Come up and make some automated customizations that go into things because uh, whenever someone writes software, something that someone doesn't know is like deep down in the bare bones of like software is uh, when you're using like cloud, there's still, there's still like a motherboard at the bottom of the cloud, right? Uh, the stream right here, there's a motherboard at the bottom of the stream. And what that means is that this conversation we're having and, and this video that we're looking at, all of it packs down to ones and zeros. It packs down to binary. And so if we were to do something to just rearrange some of those ones and zeros and then some attack built for you know, the ones and zeros that it was built for hits it, the ones and zeros aren't the same. So I mean, basically you're, you're changing ones and zeros. And so an attack built for a certain very specific set of ones and zeros won't work on an attack for something that you customize enough. Uh, so with open source, you can really kind of take like other people's work, iterate, and then make it yours. And then whenever you're worried about security things, go and like make little, little like iterations and just come up with things that just change things. You could even write algorithms that like every three months change random things. With open source software, if you are putting that out for the world to use and they start doing something, whatever you say, do, in whatever you're building, if anyone starts to adopt it, then other people are going to say anything that works well. So any anytime you come up with something that's better than whatever something someone else came up with, someone's going to see that immediately, take it, start using it, and say that they did it. And so you can just kind of pin on that. So let's say that you have an idea that you wish existed and you want to build open source software really fast. The number one secret for doing that is put the thing you don't want to make out there and say it a lot, say it a whole lot. Be like, oh. By the way, everyone, if you do these things, then it'll work just like this and it'll be really awesome. People are the types, you have those types out there. Not everyone's going to do this, but the types who like to scrape and steal and pull data from things and those hacker types who might be your enemies, make them your friends because they're going to take this and they're going to make the exact thing that you wish existed exist. And it, like without fail, you can try this. It's almost always going to work. And then you just work with the pieces uh, that they take and just put it down into your thing. You're like, okay. There's the part where I was waiting. Oh, that person did that. Let's put that. Oh, that person did that. Let's, let's put that right there. And when you do it with open source software, 
lot of these open source entities will do a lot of the same thing. So you can almost always guarantee that people are going to scrape and, and, and build and try to like take credit. And the other thing is, I am a believer that marketing and hacking are almost the same thing. <laughs> because marketing, it's like if you put, if you have good marketing, what it does is it changes a, a culture. Uh, and it changes like how people might perceive something where it's like good marketing, not like ads that people are just like blasting, like buy this thing, 20% off, 20% off. Good marketing is like, hey, if you do this thing in this better way, then good marketing will change the culture and be like, well, this is a better way to do this. And then other people will jump on board and that's marketing. Well, in a lot of ways, open source, you can do a lot of the same thing. And then you can kind of bet on the same things where people are going to adopt the thing that makes the most sense almost always, whether it's marketing, whether it's hacking, whether it's software, I don't care what it is. Uh, people follow like the path of least resistance. So if you constantly create new paths with less resistance, you can almost always guarantee people are going to like shatter through those, those barriers, whether or not you do anything. Uh, and so you, if you learn how to leverage that, then you can use other people to expedite whatever you're trying to accomplish. There's one thing that I want to reemphasize what you said, which I think is fascinating, net new, never heard it before, never really thought about it before, is that part of a good security strategy could be change. Most people look at security as preventing change. But what you're saying is that by virtue of instituting change, changing code, changing processes, you from what the general, what the hackers would understand, you are more secure. That's awesome. And the and the the periodic and regular and systematic changing of your application for that purpose is also really cool. You know, we covered a lot in in the area of um, security culture and in talking to people. You know what. And in, in most security professionals I know tend to be really kind of like walled off. Like you said before, you know, it wasn't until 2018 that you had a social media profile. So I'm going to take this at two angles. What are you most excited about in 2021 as it relates to tech? And what do you think is the thing that people should be the most aware of or paying attention to from a security perspective? That's a really good question because they're kind of similar. Uh, the thing I'm most excited about is just with the way the world's gone with things, uh, the world is coming together as a whole in, in ways that we've never seen very, very, very rapidly as of a result of all the things like 2020 and all that good stuff is people moving out of ops is people going online rapidly and all this stuff. But, you know, even though we were already going online, uh, people build you know, silos and things like that. And so historically, even like if you go back to like 2019, 2018, uh, people kind of, you know, if we have people in, in America or the UK or uh, in Singapore or some of these other countries, people still kind of uh, hang out in among their own. And the other thing is uh, to other countries and whatnot, you also don't really get to know like the people on the other side of the world quite as well and quite as easily. But all of a sudden with everyone rapidly going online and creating like more online uh, education spaces and online business spaces, uh, people just from the convenience of their room, just like I'm talking to you right now, it doesn't really matter if you were in the same state or in a completely different country. Uh, we can talk all the same and do the same kinds of things that we would be doing otherwise. And so I, I am very excited about 
2021 just like bringing the world together in ways that we haven't really seen uh, because with the loss of offices what do offices do they build like local silos and i think offices are great it's great to see people it's great to hear about people uh, but like if we do have to deal with ways to still stay in touch with people when we can't go to offices that drives something that's not just a local impact what that does is that literally just like pushed everyone in, uh, to be more global rapidly uh, and so one thing I'm very excited about with that is I even have more like international students and international clients who are trying to do you know business with other people around the world and and it's even influencing people's moving decisions. 2021, it's happening faster than I've ever seen it. Uh, but then the downside of that also is uh, it's like some of the scary things is with everyone going online, the lack of security awareness is, is actually rather terrifying. It means that everyone around us is more vulnerable because uh, let's say that maybe you care about security, but then say like uh, someone who you live with, like a roommate doesn't particularly care about security. Well, that's your security too. Good luck, have fun. You know, and so uh, even with us trying to figure out how to manage this new world where we can have friends from everywhere and anywhere and it's becoming, you know, easier, cheaper to travel, easier to work with people. One of the big ones is I come from protecting uh, medical facilities and legal facilities, things like that. Uh, and protecting, like HIPAA is what probably my entry into cybersecurity because I care tremendously about protecting people's like medical information. Uh, and, you know, I'll openly say like, I'm heavily disabled and have certain things like that. And so there are self-interests in that that led to me wanting to defend my own career interests and things like that. I uh, recently, in the last two weeks, I've been receiving at my Gmail address, they were like one, I think I've gotten a total of four. One was like your your $50 gift card is available. And another was uh, fill out this survey and another one. And I realized reading those, I'm like, to me, it was blatantly obvious. And I feel like if you're technical and in the know, you have a duty to report stuff like that because yeah my parents totally. saw that who knows i do my best to try to educate them but but who knows so um you're right yeah. awareness and and it's almost like to some extent a community service around awareness i know i i did like a cybersecurity for elderly uh class at a local library in california mm. once and i i think that that's a big deal Very nice. for techies to to work on all right well so I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit um, before I go, before I do, I want to say now that you're on the socials, make sure you follow um, NATO on LinkedIn. He shares a lot of great content and he's working on some really cool projects, but to finish it up in your, your challenging question, let's say you're a developer, you get, just got your laptop, starting a new project. It's all configured with Docker. You got everything you need to start cranking out functionality. What is the first thing you would recommend they do to secure that box? Well, I guess the first thing I would recommend is, is get multi-factor authentication and then learn how to use a VPN when you're, when you're away from your private networks. <laughs>